If you have a Bible, you can turn to a, a very, if you have any background in Christianity at all, it's a very famous passage. If not, uh, you can look it up. Uh, it's Matthew chapter 28 is where we're going to be at here this morning. Uh, and we are uh, just concluding a series that we, we're going through uh, on simply called the church. Not, not a real creative name, but, but the hope and the goal the, each week is, is simply that that we would line up our lives, our affections for that which God has uh, set his affections upon. And as we've looked through this series, God has an affinity for the church that far exceeds any of our affinity for the church uh, because we've been wounded by the church, we've been uh, mistreated by the church, but God has too. And he shed his blood for the church to purchase her and make her his bride. And so uh, to, to come in line with Jesus is to come in line with that which he loves. And, and so we want to love the church. We want to be committed to the church. We want to uh, sacrifice the, to the church. We want to be covenant members. And, and so the, the series we've looked at first and foremost is that God saves people and those people are called the church. It's not a building, but it's rescued and redeemed people from all over the world. And, and, and out of those people, he invites them into covenant. And, and the covenant is just that, that, that attitude of the heart to come to a place and say, what can I give? How can I serve? How can I lay down my life and not demand it of others, but, but to, to expect it of ourselves? And so we looked at the 59 one another's in the New Testament, that we were to love one another, serve one another, uh, encourage one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, single dudes don't take that too far, but you... Um, you get this idea that, that God loves the church and he wants the church to, to love each other. And so uh, we looked at that and then we said, uh, but, but we're not just members of the church universal, though we are, that, that it is the New Testament uh, expectation that every person that's been rescued and redeemed would join themselves in a covenant way to a local body of believers so that every Christian should be able to say, those are the people I'm in covenant with. Those are the people that when things go a little wonky, when, when I get sinned against or when I sin against them, we, we're not too quick to push away from the table, but we're going to deal with this because Jesus dealt with it on the cross and we're going to love and serve one another. And we've said all along, there are no perfect churches. Praise God for that, because none of us would be a part of it. But because there's no perfect churches, God invites us in, and Ephesians tells us that we all are gifted. Those that have the Spirit of God, those that have trusted in Christ, you have a spiritual gift. And it's not for you, it's for the person on your left and right, and it's for me. And when we understand that and live out our gifting, something amazing happens in the church. There's a maturing process that happens, but hopefully we'll always be a little bit immature. Because if, we're, if we don't bring in new people, if we're not outwardly focused, then we're actually only looking mature. Because the mature church has always got babies in it, and babies make a mess. Diapers need to be changed. And so we want a little bit of a mess in this place. We want our lives to be a little bit of a mess. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way is how we would say it. And so uh, we, we said in, in God's wisdom, Ephesians 3.10 says that the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church. And in his wisdom, he said uh, that there are some types of men that should rise up and lead the church. We looked at that last week. They're called elders. They're called pastors. They're called overseers. But they're not the type of man that seeks power and authority. That would automatically disqualify them for the role. 
It's the type of man that has been so, uh, so uh, captured by the gospel and so in love with what Jesus has done for him that he loves the church. And he says, I'll, I'll serve the church. I'll lay down my life for the church. I'll lead the way in, in all ways to sacrifice the church, for the church. And we said the proving ground for that man is his home. And that no man that cannot love his family and love his kids in such a way that, that his wife and his children are flourishing, uh, he cannot lead the church if he's not doing that. Because if he's not doing it at home, he sure as heck is not going to do it for you. And so it's a high calling. It's a calling that says uh, that, that should cause the elder to tremble. And yet it's a good calling. And it's a calling that creates an immense joy in, in the leaders. And, and you should make it a joy for your leaders. But this week, we're going to look at, in the final week, that God has not only organized this church and brought this church together, he's, he's set it up to be outward-looking, outward-facing. So, so we have a mission. Now, now, one of the things I know about every person in here, regardless of what you believe, if you're not a Christian, we're, we're glad you're here, no matter where you're at on the spectrum, I know this about you. You want your life to matter. You want your life to matter more than... Uh, then you, then you really, like, you've moved to the suburbs because safety, comfort, and security are a high value, but there's something in you that are like, I want to risk. I want to I go to war. I want to I fight for that which will outlast my life. I want to give my life to something that is bigger than myself. I know that about you. And the second thing is that the most miserable people, the most miserable marriages, the most miserable churches you know are inward-focused people, marriages, and churches. Uh, if anyone ha- maybe has good reason, has a lot of wounds, but, but just cannot lift their eyes off themselves, they become this kind of black hole for joy. It all gets sucked in, and, and people go further and further away from them because they only want to talk about themselves and their problems. And there's a place for that. There's a place for bearing one another's burdens. But if their whole life is oriented to themselves, they get more and more isolated. Same thing happens in your marriage. Same thing happens in the church. If the church is not outward focused, if the church is not on mission, it very quickly becomes a dysfunctional, cannibalistic organization that it was never intended to be. So this is probably my most exciting sermon in the series because I'm the most excited about it because I want us to be a church on mission. I love that God has brought us here to worship God and God has done 10,000 other things in the last year that we've been together as a church. But one of the things that, that, that we're just praying for, God, we're glad you brought these people in, but we want, we want new believers. and we, we want people to come and know Jesus in a saving way. We want people to be rescued and redeemed by the gospel. We want our neighbors, our family members, our coworkers, and we want to do it through these people. They've got to open their mouths. They've got to open their homes. They've got to tell the gospel to people. That's on you. That's not on me. They may never come in here, but you are equipped and called and empowered for a mission that is more glorious than you could ever imagine. A mission that's more dangerous than you could ever imagine. A mission that none of us can do on our own. A mission that will cost us more than we ever thought. But a mission that will uh, fill our lives and our days, not only on this side of eternity, but forever with meaning, purpose, and value. It's the mission of God for the church. And every one of us is on that mission if you're a believer. And so uh, we've come to experience church in America as a spectator sport. It is not a spectator sport. 
If you think Christianity is simply showing up on a Sunday morning, we, we love Sunday mornings. It's part of the overall, but that's not Christianity. It, it is uh, people on mission, outward, serving, washing the feet of the city so that they can come and know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, the last words uh, of Matthew's gospel. You probably know it already as the, the, the Great Commission. Maybe you have it memorized. Uh, it's a good verse, a good passage to memorize. I would encourage you to do that. But here's my challenge in this moment. Because it's so familiar, we lose the impact of it. Because we have it memorized, we're like, yeah, Great Commission, next. What do you, what's, what's next week's sermon? Well, Matthew's preaching next week. Let's talk about that. No, we, we can't move on too quickly in this. So especially when we're in the Gospels, and especially when we come to um, very familiar passages, I always want to press in on you to in, read it slowly and engage the text with your spirit-filled imagination. What I mean by that isn't that you would be adding to the text, but I mean, what I mean by that is let's stop and ask questions of the text. Let's, let's pause and say, well, what's going on? What would it have been like to be one of the disciples on the side of the mountain on Galilee when Jesus said these words? So we got to enter into the text. I'm going to read the, well, I'm not going to read the passage. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to work us through the text here this morning. But uh, I just I really, it's my prayer that, if you, if, you didn't, if you only got two things of this whole series, is one, that you are a covenant people, that you are called to lay down your life for each other, and two, that you are a people on mission. So let me pray that the Spirit would help us see that now. God, I, I thank you for your word, and I do pray for your Spirit's power right now. Holy Spirit, there, there's so much that uh, distracts us from the mission, myself included, uh, God, I pray that your spirit would just show us the joy of the mission, the, the hope of the mission. And, and as we launch out, Lord, we would um, launch out knowing that you have called us to something so much bigger than ourselves, and that we'd find hope, meaning, and purpose in that. So speak to us now. Holy Spirit, do what you do best and make much of Jesus in our midst. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that you, you need to know, that, that when you become outward as a person or as a marriage or as a church, that there is joy in that. When you lay down your life, there is joy in that. The, the most joyful person that ever walked the planet was Jesus Christ. He, he came from heaven and glory, and he, he walked the planet, and he knew he was going to the cross. But even the cross was about joy. See, we, we, we can rightly say that love held Jesus to the cross, but we can also rightly say that, that joy held Jesus to the cross. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us this, tells us as much. Well, I don't have it in there. There it is. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus died for the glory of God and the joy of all people. He went to the cross scorning its shame, but he knew it would secure in him a greater joy, and it would secure for you and me a greater joy. The mission is about joy. And so with that lens, we come to the passage this morning, Matthew chapter 28, starting verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, They saw Jesus, 
when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Okay, so again, because of the familiarity of the passage, we're like, okay, so they saw Jesus. Lots of people saw Jesus. No, 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 no. We need to, we need to back it up. We need to start in the beginning. Not, not the beginning of Jesus, because he's before all times. Colossians 1 says all things were created by him and for him. But let's, let's back it up 33 years. This Jesus, who we celebrate at Christmas, stepped down from heaven and glory and, and put on flesh, the incarnation, and he joined a, a family that would ever, forever be kind of veiled in scandal. That, that, that girl Mary and that guy Joseph. And, and in the scandal, he would have to, he would have to flee as a, as a newborn, as an infant, and as a toddler to be a refugee. Jesus understands what refugees go through because he was a refugee in Egypt. And after a few years, when things opened up again, uh, Joseph led the family back to Galilee, to the backwaters of Israel. And small towns are not kind to uh, families of scandal, but that's where Jesus grew up. He learned the trade of his earthly father as a carpenter, and he, he lived in relative obscurity for 30 years. He had a cousin that was a little bit of a religious nut. His name was John the Baptizer. When they were both about 30, John had begun to get a, a following because John was, was strange. He had, he had camel's hair clothes. He had little bits of honey and uh, locusts in his beard because he didn't shave that, and that's what he ate. And he began to preach about repentance. And he would say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and droves would go out to the desert and go to the Jordan River, and they'd be baptized by this guy. But as he baptized him, he said, there's someone coming that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, his sandals. I don't think he had Nikes back then. But then one day, Jesus, when he was 30 years old, walked up to his cousin. And he says, I want you to baptize me. So, oh, no, Lord, I, I, I'm not worthy to baptize you. And Jesus said, no, this is to fulfill all righteousness. So the crowd is just kind of mulling around the side, but, but John baptizes his cousin Jesus. And when Jesus comes out of the water, a spirit, the, the, the dove comes down from the sky representing the Holy Spirit, and then a voice booms over everything. They didn't have PA systems. They were, this would have shocked the crowd. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the crowd's like, what in the world is going on? And Jesus began to gather some, some disciples. They weren't of men of stature. They were fishermen. They were, they were tax collectors. They were religious zealots. Uh, but these guys would, would follow Jesus. As, as he taught the crowds, he would also teach them a, a whole new way to think about God, that the kingdom of God is upside down than we've ever conceived it. The kingdom of God is not about trying to earn your way there, but that God has come down, and he teaches them and teaches them, and he tells the crowd parables. And, and I love it. The, he, the disciples get, pull them off to the side often, and they're like, we don't understand what you're talking about, because I can relate to that. Sometimes I don't understand what Jesus is talking about, but he's patient with them. And they walk for, for days and months and years along the dusty Palestinian trails, and they're covered in his dust. And, and they, there's other times where they're in a small boat, and a storm comes up. Jesus is sleeping, and they're freaking out. And Jesus is like, storm, knock it off. And they're like, they're even more terrified after that. Who is this guy? Who is this guy that can, the wind and the waves chill out at him? His detractors uh, accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton, though he was neither. Because Jesus 
knew how to party. <laughs> Jesus, at his first miracle, turned water into wine. Jesus was okay with sitting down at a table with the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. He was okay with being with the people. And in, with those people, he told them about the kingdom of God. And their lives were changed, and, and hope began to rise. And, and Jesus would go around, and he would heal the sick, and he would uh, feed the 5,000, and he would cast out demons, and the crowds would get very, very large. But just as soon as the crowds got very, very large, Jesus would say things that would drive the crowds away. He'd be like, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. To follow me means death. And they're like, no, thank you. We just want the healings. We want the food. We're out of here. But his disciples weren't. His disciples are like, uh, we don't know where to go. We're with you no matter what. But they still had in their mind something of the, the, the wrong kingdom. They, they had in their mind that somehow, way, sticking close to Jesus was going to make them great. So they would argue, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is like, you guys, you don't get it. And Jesus was patient with them. So that after the third year, he gathered them one night in an upper room and, and, and continued to teach them about the kingdom. But, but in their mind, they're like, yeah, 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 we're going to be awesome. <laughs> You'll be the best, Jesus, of course, but we'll be like vice president or, or maybe John will be vice president and you'll be secretary of state. That'll be awesome. And then Jesus did the unthinkable. He got down on his knees. He removed his cloak and took the position of a slave and began to wash the disciples' feet one by one. That freaked him out. They're like, no, 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 Lord, don't do that to me. He's like, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And so um, he washes their feet, and they're just shocked. Their jaws are on the ground. Who is this rabbi? What, what kind of guy is this? What kind of kingdom is he telling us about? And they are putting all their hope and all their trust in him. This is what, what you got to understand coming into Matthew 28. And he began to talk about how his time was coming. And the disciples were like, no, we won't bail on you. He's like, come on, guys, let's go to the garden. He went to the garden, and in the garden, he says, guys, I need you in this moment to be there for me. And those disciples, like us as disciples, and every disciple that ever came after him failed Jesus in that moment. They fell asleep, and Jesus went before his father, and he pled with the father, Father, if there's any other way, uh, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he went three times and got no answer. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was abandoned. He was crucified. He died. And the world of the disciples was crushed. Not only all their hopes were crushed in Jesus, now they were terrified. They were locked away in, in another room thinking, what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. They're going to die like a common criminal, just like Jesus died. And so... Uh, they took Jesus' body down, Joseph of Arimathea, stone cold, no blood pumping, no life in his bones, uh, and wrapped him up and put him in the tomb Friday afternoon. All day Friday, all day Saturday, Sunday morning, resurrection happens. He appears to Mary and Martha. He, he goes to the disciples. And over the next 40 days, he appears to the large groups of people, over 500 at one time, and small groups of people. And, and every time, they're amazed and shocked. And, and at one point, he says to the disciples, now you guys go up to Galilee. Remember where I taught you this? Remember how we spent so much time on that hill? Just wait there for me. Wait there for me. 
When I come, then I got a message for you. And so they went up there. We don't know how long it was. Maybe it was a few, few days. Maybe it was a couple weeks. They're waiting. Like, remember what Jesus said here. And remember how we caught all the fish over there. And they're waiting. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there. Flesh and bones, holes in his wrist, holes in his side, holes in his ankles, shows up yet again. So, so that's what they're experiencing in this moment. That's why it's so shocking. That's why it says, when they saw him, that's a shocking statement. They're not gullible people. <coughs> How many people have you seen that were dead and are alive? It's not the normal course of events. It's not an expectation for you. <coughs> it wasn't for them either. But they see Jesus and they have two responses. They worshiped him. So the word in the Greek is proskuneo. It means they got on their face before Jesus. It's the right and appropriate response when you truly see Jesus. They worshiped him. But then some doubted. Like, yes, some doubted. Like, again, they're not used to seeing dead people alive. And so they're like, is this even possible? That this, uh, imagine the roller coaster these guys have been on. <coughs> Up and down, up and down. And, and, and so they're, they're way, that's, that's the sense, that's the tension that's on the side of the mountain in this moment. That's the tension that God is inviting us to step into in this moment. And here's what Jesus said, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we just stopped right there. No matter what comes after that, it doesn't matter. All authority has been given to Jesus. So if Jesus says, if the next thing Jesus says is, so I'm going to turn you all into bees and you're going to pollinate the world. You better buckle up. You're going to sprout some wings. You better do some study on some flowers. You might want to figure out how to make honey because it's going to happen. Because all authority in heaven and on earth resides in Jesus. So, so he has all authority in the heavenly realm. He is King Jesus. He speaks and the universe comes into existence. He has all authority on earth. He, he'll use earthly authorities and politicians for his purposes. Absolutely. He has all natural authority. He can say, tell the waves to chill out. He has authority over life and death. One day one of his uh, friends died and he didn't go to the tomb. And so uh, four days later he went to see Lazarus, who was in the tomb, and went outside the tomb. And this is a paraphrase. He was just, Lazarus, knock it off. Come out. And he did. He has all authority. So, so that, that's one thing that all of us need to continue to wrap our lives around. Jesus has authority over your life. Jesus has authority over your marriage. Jesus has authority of how you uh, do your job. Jesus has all authority, whether you like that or not. The sooner you get on board with Jesus' supreme authority, the happier you will be because he has all authority. So it doesn't really matter what he says after that because it's going to happen. This is what he says after that. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go therefore, make disciples. Now, in, in the English, it looks like there's two commands. It looks like there's a command to go, and then it looks like there's a command to make disciples. But actually, in the original language, the go, therefore, really is translated as you are going. 
So it's just assumed that we'll go. It's not even needed to be commanded. As you go. So on, on the one sense, that means uh, we, because it's all nations, eventually the church will go across oceans and uh, across the globe and reach all nations. On the other sense, it just means in your daily life, wherever you're at, you are called, if you're a disciple, to make disciples. And so it, it's an all play. This isn't for you know, extra credit Christians. This isn't for crazy missionaries and pastors. This is in all play if you're a disciple. This is a command from the lips of the Son of God to you and to me this morning. Go make disciples. And as you go, make disciples. It means as you go out of here today, you make disciples. As you go into work tomorrow, you're making disciples. As you go into your neighborhood, you're making disciples. A couple verses help us understand this. Psalm 139 amazing psalm. If I had time, I'd go through the whole thing, but I'm just going to look at verse 16. The psalmist says this, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What the psalmist is saying is God is sovereign over your life. He knows every day that you will live. He knows when you were born. He knows before you ever were a thought in your mom and dad's imagination, he knew your days. He knew every breath that you would take. He knew every person you would talk to. He knew every challenge you would go through. He knew every joy. He knew the highs and the lows. And in fact, he is orchestrating and and moving them for his global, sovereign, eternal purposes. Paul picks up on this as well in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, Paul was one of the the people that God, by the Spirit, said, as you go, you're going to go over oceans, and you're going to go into other cultures. And so Paul had a missionary mandate, but he would go into a culture, and as a good missionary, he would study the culture. And as he went into Athens, he looked around, and it's like, man, these, these people really understand worship. It's just all misdirected. They, they love to worship. In fact, they've got a, a statue for every god imaginable. And Paul is, is studying the culture. He's, he's getting into the culture and he's saying, what drives these people? Where's the gospel key to unlocking this culture? And he's just kind of observing, maybe for, for a few days, maybe for a week or two, and he's observing, he's talking with people, he's trying to get to know them, and, and he's looking at all these statues to Aphrodite and Dionysus and Apollos and <clears throat> Zeus and all these statues and people coming to the statues and offering offerings and offerings. And finally, he comes in Acts 17, he comes to one statue that says, to an unknown God. See, the, the Athenians were so religious, they wanted a, a, a religious umbrella policy. Like, if it's not one of these, let's just have an umbrella policy. Let's put one up. That we're going to call him an unknown God. That's, that's, so so we're, we've got an all play. And so Paul says, there's the key. There's the key to unlocking the gospel in this culture. And so in the busyness of the marketplace, people trading goods and and buying food and and making deals, Paul gets their attention. Hey, everybody, can I get your attention? Hey, I I have something to tell you. And they're like, who is this guy with a Hebrew accent? And they begin to turn their attention because he gets their attention. He's like, hey, I notice you're very religious. And I notice you have many statues around here, but this one, yeah, the one to the unknown God. Got good news for you. I know who it is. And he began to tell them 
the gospel, but he tells them that in a culturally appropriate way. He has studied their culture. He begins to quote their poets. So he's listened to the top 40 radio, and he's like, just like uh, this pop singer said in your culture, this points to God. And so that's what he does. But here's what he, he says in that moment in verse 26. He says, from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. <clears throat> now listen to this. He says, and God determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. So this is kind of an echo of Psalm 139. God has determined the time set for you and the exact places in which you should live. So you thought you moved out to Parker because you got a promotion. But God said, no, I got bigger plans than a promotion. That's, that's small stuff. You thought you moved out to Parker because it offers safety, comfort, and security. And God says, oh, wait, wait till you see the son of the living God. That, that's going to become secondary or tertiary or whatever the case may be. You, you thought you moved into your neighborhood because it was, uh, they, they lowered the price. You, you thought, no matter what you thought, God says in his sovereignty, I have determined the exact places and locations in which you should live. I have determined who you'll be married to. I have determined who your family will be. I determine who's your neighbor on your left and your right. I know them. I'm at work in their lives. Do you know your neighbor on your left and your right? So that, that's the first takeaway of this whole thing. If you take nothing away, if you don't know your neighbor, that's the very first step. God knows the neighbor, and God has put you in between those two neighbors for his, well, it says for his purposes, verse 27. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God knows what he's doing. The mission will be accomplished, whether you sign on or not. But God has you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, with your friends, with your family for this mission. That's what will give your life the meaning and purpose that you, you long for. This means having that, that your life is not an accident. It means that your life is bigger than your job. So if you're blessed in any way by Redemption Parker... To some degree, that can be traced back to a back room of a pizza hut. When I'm folding boxes as a 19-year-old, and another guy who's a, a believer saw through his job trying to provide for his family and work at a church on the side, saw that this was his mission field, and he would talk to people about the gospel, and he came to me and he cast vision for my life. He said, you know, I, I feel like God wants to use you in a special way. No one had ever said that to me. But it took someone seeing that it's not about this place or this job or this neighborhood. It takes someone saying that God is sovereign over all, that every conversation you have is, a, is an opportunity to uh, bring God with you. And so it's about gospel intentionality. It's about praying for our friends and our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, and saying, what's the key to unlocking this? What's the statue to an unknown God? It takes gospel intentionality, though. It takes praying. Like, Lord, what's the thing that would unlock the gospel in my neighbor's heart, my coworker's heart? It's somewhere because God has ordained the exact times and location in which you should live so that men might seek him and find him, though they're not far from anyone, though he's not far from anybody. Well, I could go on all day, so I'll just move on. Uh, let's, let's press on. So go, therefore, make disciples of all nations so we should have uh, an international uh, flavor to our church. And uh, I'll share with you about that in just a moment. But he says, baptizing them 
In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we believe at Redemption Park, we believe in uh, believer's baptism, credo of baptism. We believe that in the moment that you're converted, that you trust in Jesus by grace through faith, that one of the first steps of obedience should be to get baptized. One, because Jesus says it. Two, because of the, the purpose and meaning behind it. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality that God has uh, taken you down with Christ and raised you up to newness in life. But what's the deal with in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? To be baptized in the first century into something was to, to uh, associate yourself with that something. And so to be baptized in the triune God is to be baptized in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. To be baptized in the name of the Father means that we have a father now. We are adopted sons and daughters. We have a, a, an imperishable inheritance, Paul says. We will reign with Christ forever in part, as part of his family. To be baptized in the name of the Son means that we have the righteousness of Christ. The reason we can stand before God the Father with confidence and joy is not because of our religious performance, but because Jesus is. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And he covers us with his righteousness. He calls us saints. He calls us holy ones, fully accepted. All of our righteousness gone by the wayside. All of his righteousness credited to us. To be baptized in the name of the Spirit means that we have been given new life by the Spirit. He's removed the heart of stone and put it with a heart of flesh. He's brought us from death to life. He has sealed us, Ephesians 1 says. There's nothing breaking that seal. And so that he empowers us to live a life that honors and glorifies Jesus. That's what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you haven't been baptized and you're a believer, I would just say, quit punting that down the road for your joy and for your obedience to Jesus because he has all authority. Obey him in this. Finally, before I get to the last verse, I want to just talk about a little bit of what, what this will look like, how we'll pursue discipleship at Redemption Parker. There's four things, gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community, gospel-centered service, and gospel-centered multiplication. So, so that's how we will go about making disciples who make disciples. So gospel-centered worship is the fuel for discipleship. So the Bible describes our whole life as an offering of worship. So the way you work is a, is a worship act. The way you spend your money is an act of worship. The way we come in here and sing is an act of worship. The way we, we organize everything is, should be an act of worship. The way we receive the word, the way we come to this communion table is an act of worship. When we baptize people, it'll be an act of worship. When we leave here, it'll be an act of worship. It's the fuel for discipleship. Number two, gospel-centered community. We, we believe that community is the primary context for making disciples. See, in a sense, even as believers, we're to, because we're gifted in different ways, make disciples of one another. That's why one-on-one -on -one discipleship is a limited discipleship, because I only have certain gifts I can pass down. But when I bring it into a community context, we can all share in the gifts and grow one another. The way we pursue this most at Redemption Parker is through our gospel communities. It gives an opportunity for us to exercise our gifts. It gives us an opportunity to, to break bread together and spend some slow time over our meal together, to pray for one another, to open up the word and ask questions. What does this say about God? What does this say about us? It gives us an opportunity to hear each other's stories. And so as often as possible, that's what we want to put before you because we want to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. 
And we believe community is the context for that. Gospel-centered service is the overflow of discipleship. Those that have been so transformed by the gospel, they're looking for ways to pour themselves out on behalf of others. Now, we have some opportunities here on Sunday morning, but that's not the sum total of service. We would hope that you and your gospel communities, you and your families would look for ways to wash the feet of the city so that Jesus would be made much of in the city. Jesus said after he washed the disciples' feet that do this to one another, and and as you you love one another, the world will know you're my disciples, and so service is important for our discipleship. And finally, gospel-centered multiplication. That's the result of discipleship. As we are growing, as we are embracing the mission, we're trusting God that he would use the gospel to transform lives. So yes, your life has to be on par with the gospel. You're not going to do it perfectly, but a day is coming, a time is coming where you actually have to open your mouth. You realize no one's going to get saved by just looking at you. They'll just think you're Mormon. I'm serious. They're like, well, you're not drinking with that meal? Tell me about Jesus. No, they're never going to say that. So, so yes, commend your life to them, but at a certain point, you need to engage in, in spiritual conversation and trust that the Spirit is in that. And so that's discipleship on a micro level, but we want to be about discipleship on a city level. And that's why we've brought on the Bowermans and said we want to have a, be a church that plants churches, that plants churches. We believe the best way to make disciples is in the context of the local church. And so as we plant churches, well before we're ready, well before the finances are in place, we're going to say we're going to be faithful with a little so that you would trust us with a lot later down the road. And so we're pouring into him. We're, we're, we're asking God to, to grow a team and, and to grow Matthew and Lauren and, and get them ready to go because we want to be a church that plants churches that plants churches. I mean, that's a legacy that we have. If God closes down Redemption Park or five years from now, but we've planted another church that is planting other churches, man, that will last forever. So we want to do that locally. We want to do that nationally. We care about our country. And so uh, we've partnered with Acts 29. Acts 29 is just a a network of like-minded churches that want to be churches that plant churches. And so now there's almost 700 of them in the world, and they're growing and multiplying uh, in a context for people to love their context well. We want to be part of uh, just serving wherever we can. You can talk to Paul and talk to about his trip to Lakota this summer. You go again this summer, and you go into Idaho. Okay, so talk to him. These are opportunities to, in response to the gospel, sacrifice one of your two weeks of vacation and serve. You will be rewarded in that. So we want to do that nationally, but we also want to do it internationally. I'm so pumped about this. We got to have a a global lens because it's all nations. And this week we entered into a formal financial partnership, but not just financial, a prayer partnership, an encouragement partnership with uh, the Edwards family. I'm going to pull them up here on the screen. The Edwards serve with pioneers in Europe. Uh, They're also Acts 29 church planters in Trieste, Italy. They're with a team there that has planted a church. Trieste is right on the border of Slovenia in Italy, so it's on the top of the boot there. They're from Australia. And uh, I love that. I love that picture that this church in suburban Colorado would come alongside financially, partner with them, prayerfully partner with them, get to know uh, Sarah and Graham, uh, Enzo. If you know anything about car racing and Italians, Enzo is the most famous car racer ever. So they use that as a little gospel bridge. And Sydney, because they're from Sydney, Australia. 
So this church in Colorado is going to partner with this family from Australia that is now in Italy uh, in a town of 90,000 people with maybe 100 believers. The work is hard. I did a podcast. I'll share the podcast. I did a podcast a couple months ago with him. Part of my job is to do podcasts with missionaries. And I was talking to him, and he said, uh, you know, when, when we're in Italy, we've been here for four years now, when, when we tell people what we do, uh, they don't mean it in a mean way. They just, their response more times than not is, everybody hates you here. Why are you here? <laughs> well, they're here, and then it gets an opportunity to share the gospel. <laughs> I'll tell you why I'm here. Uh, they need encouragement. Uh, I hope that some of you go on vacation and, and reroute it a little bit and go, go see them and see the church plant there. So again, uh, we're, we're, the church is given to them. We're, we're given uh, away over 10% of our budget to, to missions and to other church plants. Um, so you can, again, we want to be trusted with the little we have so that the Lord would see fit to grow it. We would do that as well. So that's international. One more verse as I've gone on way too long, but I told you I was excited. And it may be the most important verse in the whole book of Matthew. Oh, that the Lord would allow us to see this and to savor it, to wrap our lives around this. Verse 20. He says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold. That means, hey, pay attention. Check this out. I've got good news for you. Behold, look at what I'm about to say to you. I am with you Always to the end of the age. The Christian life is not just difficult, it's impossible. Only one guy was able to pull it off, and so he wants to live it through you. And so when you leave here and, and go to lunch, and when you go into your neighbors, and you go to school tomorrow, and you, you get Tyler, and you're changing diapers, and you, you go into the business meeting, and, and, and you go uh, on vacation, and, and you, you call up someone on the phone, wherever you're at, Jesus is there. So that the presence of God is in your neighborhood because you're there. And Jesus is with you. Jesus will give you the words through his spirit to say when it's time to say. He'll give you the power. He's with you in every way imaginable. He'll be there with you every step, every breath, every challenge, every joy, every conversation, every moment of every day this week. Jesus is with you. So together we are disciples who make disciples for the glory of God and the joy of all people. Let's pray and continue in our worship. God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you, you invite us to something so much gl more glorious than the American dream, so much more glorious than building our own little kingdom, so much more difficult than any one of us can do on our own. But together we know that a time is coming when every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather before the throne and worship you as Lord. And you've invited those you've rescued and redeemed to be a part of that process. It's amazing, Lord. So fill us. And even as the enemy would come after, after we walk out of here and say, don't believe that, just, just chill out. I pray that your spirit would remind us of the truth this week as we step with boldness, with power, and with your presence into our relationships, into our family, into our workplaces, into school, and wherever you would lead us to the end that Jesus is glorified. We ask in Jesus.